I would invite you to turn in Matthew's Gospel this morning. We are charging into a big book of the Bible, but a very important one for us. Especially in times like these, uh, we know that Jesus is King and we understand that. We understand that He is sovereign and working through things. But when things shake up in our culture at the level that it's been shaking up and, and things are sort of turning and churning on a daily basis in our minds and hearts, it's important to be re-steadied by the truth and reality that Jesus is our King. And Matthew's Gospel is about Jesus being the Messiah King. Verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew is very intentional here right at the top to say the book, the Biblios of this record is to prove that Jesus is Messiah, which for the Jewish mind and thinker is Jesus is Savior, King, King Jesus. Mark's gospel speaks of Jesus being the servant, um, the suffering servant. Luke's gospel, Jesus being son of man or fully human all the way back from Adam. He's traceable in terms of his humanity, being born of the Virgin Mary. And then John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Jesus is fully God, fully human and fully God. Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is king. This Christ whom we speak is ruling everything. And so we need to reflect on this king as we mentioned last week. He's um, point one, a relevant king. He's ruling now. He's in charge now, right now. And then he is sovereign as king, we learned last week. He's reflecting the repeated phrase through Matthew that the kingdom of God um, is like this, is like that. The kingdom of God has come Historically, in the nation of Israel, there was a kingdom on earth through the nation of Israel, and his kingship and, and glory was reflected there, his presence there. And then in Christ's coming, as documented in the Gospels, his kingdom came with his presence physically here, kingdom dynamics. He preached the kingdom, and then Jesus has come in our hearts as we are part of the New Testament church. If you know Jesus, the kingdom lives in your life dynamically. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not a religion of do's and don'ts, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has given you a relationship with this king. And then we know from scripture, predictions and prophecies will be fulfilled. Jesus will come back and rule here physically as king on earth for a thousand years and so this king that we hope in has to be not only relevant, known as sovereign, but thirdly in our outline, and this is our point for this morning, he has to be credible. This has to be real. This has to be true. Matthew's point as a scholar who wrote this book is to say Jesus is the credible king, undoubtedly so. If Jesus isn't credible, then it's all a sham. Christianity is just fakery. And Jesus is a sham and our faith is a sham. But Matthew is proving that that's not the case, that Jesus is the Christ, 
This is a genealogy. This is a record of history. And this should not just be tossed aside or, or sort of resisted as a sort of fence around the gospel of Matthew that we can't penetrate. A lot of people will shy away from teaching Matthew because they don't want to deal with the genealogy. Well, we're going to deal with it right now. And it's got a message for us. It's more than just a list of names. It's more than just an Old Testament record of things. This is not just the scan reading part of your devotion time. There is meaning here. And if you take the genealogy in bites and in units, its clarity unfolds before your eyes as to why it's written the way it's written. It has to mean something, and it's inspired, and the Bible says that all Scripture is profitable. So what is profitable about this record for us? Well, verse 1, it's a genealogy of Jesus. So this is revealing to us Jesus. You want to learn more about Jesus, we're learning about where Jesus the Christ came from. What's his history? What's his family tree? And that's important for us. Matthew was a very credible writer, so some context here. Matthew, again, tax gatherer, formerly known as Levi, converted, followed Jesus Christ. But him being a tax gatherer meant that he was a Jew under Roman authority. And so he was a government worker working for the government of Rome on behalf of Rome to the Jews. And he would um, carry the reputation as a tax collector who built the system and worked the system and, and you know, leveraged to get money, would be hated, would be known as a traitor but would be someone who could converse with Roman Gentiles and then also Jews. He was undoubtedly um, bilingual and trilingual as, um, as a person and as a record keeper. He was, he was known as the scribe of the apostles, according to the other gospel accounts. He wasn't as prominent as Peter, James, and John, but Matthew was smart. He was smart. So his genealogy is very deliberate. He was in the gospel record, indicting the Jewish people for their unbelief. Uh, As we'll read Matthew, Jesus is rejected over and over, and and Matthew is proving that he should not be rejected, but he should be extolled or worshipped as the saving God and king. Genealogies uh, served in ancient um, history, Near East history, as diverse... um, Um, For diverse reasons, economic reasons, tribal reasons, political reasons, domestic reasons, they showed um, genealogical family relationships. Um, But this is showing us the ultimate relationship, which is the relationship we should have with Jesus Christ, who is provably uh, the Messiah. He's qualified. This is also a storyline. It's more than just a record record. List And I want this to hit you in your heart. This is a storyline of Jesus, and it's a story filled with people's stories. They're different lifetimes where they experienced God's grace. This is a picture of God intervening in grace in the lives of people that built the foundation for Jesus' coming. It's all webbed together, an ancestry full of grace to bring the king of grace. So Jesus is not only qualified as a king, he's the king of grace. And it's built from these lives, these names are lives that were transformed by 
grace, and we're going to be able to learn about some of them. Well, secondly, not only are we learning context here, we're learning the goal here. The goal of this genealogy is found in verse 6. It's to connect that Jesus' coming was from the line of David. The true king of the Jews had to come from the line of David. Had to. That had to be indisputably true. Because David was the first believing king. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. Every Jew knew that Jesus, the true Messiah, would have to connect back to King David. King David was who made Israel a powerful nation under God. And verse 6 connects things back to David the king. You see that in the second half of verse 6. Jesse, the father of David the king. In verse 1, Jesus is the son of David. This all reflects the promise God gave directly to David in 2 Samuel seven twelve that he was going to establish his kingdom through his offspring. In verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Even verse 14 speaks of iniquity, and we know that David had sin and others followed in sin. But verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And verse 16, your kingdom shall be made forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So this promise had to be fulfilled in a person who would be the Messiah. And this is Matthew's instinct is to prove that. And he proves it from a human standpoint or in terms of just this genealogical record. So a Jew would be reading this and the genealogies had to be precise and accurate and perfectly laid out just like this one was. The first third of it is pulled directly from 1 Chronicles 1 through 3 and then Ruth 4, 12 through 22. And so that would have been verifiably, thank you, Uh, yeah, thank you, Um, true as people would be looking back, cross-referencing that from the Greek version of the Old Testament. But then some of the names as you work through the, the, into the third section become kind of vague and unrecognizable because they were pulled in from extra biblical literature that um, came uh, sort of during the time of the rebuilding of the second temple. Remember, first temple um, was destroyed and Israel was sent into Babylonian captivity and then sent back under the command and leadership of Zerubbabel, and then things were rebuilt. Well, when things were rebuilt and established, the records during that time are not coming from the Old Testament, but from other sources, but still trying to prove the lines. And so that's where you see names that you go, I've never heard anything about that person before. And that leading into the 400 years of the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the coming of Christ, which was 400 years. But all of this had to be traceable to Jesus Christ. And all of this came under the inspired writing of Matthew because the Holy Spirit was inspiring Matthew. And so these names are verifiable, I can't say that word, verifiable, use use my words, okay, verifiable um, in God's plan. It's impossible to invent another way to establish David's throne because of the way the records um, actually um, were lost except for what we find here in Scripture. Uh, they, you know, in history, perhaps this is historical and, and after the times and writings of the, of the New Testament, but in A.D. 70, you have 
You have um, Israel was ransacked and, and brought to rubble um, under Roman um, government and empowerment and overthrow. And so records were destroyed. And so this account is very important for us to be able to verify that it all traces back to Abraham and it's all true. There couldn't be, there could be no other Messiah except for the one that is verified through this text. And so rather than just going name by name, let's take this in big bites to try to understand this. This record is as credible as Genesis 5, Genesis 10, 11, and um, you have records and genealogical sort of history that builds into this. One misstep would discredit this um, genealogy in Ezra 3 or Ezra 2, 62. There were tribes coming back from Babylonian captivity that were actually disqualified or considered unclean. And so the priesthood was broken apart. There were, there were people who could not be serving as priests because they were not found in genealogical records that were lost at certain points in, in that time. Any admixture of foreign blood um, from the Old Testament account would, would mess things up. But this is uh, more than a legal record. This is a pedigree of eras. This this genealogy really rep- represents three different chapters of redemptive history that are broken down into units of 14, 14, and 14. You can see that in verse 17 of the genealogy. Just to kind of give a parenthetical end to this, it says, So all the genealogies from Abraham to David were 14 generations. So, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You have from Abraham to David, which is comprising eight to 900 years, Abraham to David, that's a long period of time, the eight different 100-year units Um, of history here and 14 different names. There's obviously a lot of different names in between those names, but you have 14 different names that represent that period. Then you have the second era that is David to exile. So David is on the throne. You have Saul, then he's disqualified. And David, you have all these kings, Solomon, you have the splitting of the northern and southern kingdom. And then you have things go from bad to worse where kings are wrapped up in idolatry and sin. And that's, 14, uh, that's 400 years of history of that. Then they go into Babylon. And then the third is from um, the exile to their return. And then, and then on to Christ, which is 600 years. So you have 800 years, you have 400 years, and 600 years. Which basically, if you round up, averages up to 2,000 years of history. That's what's covered here in verses 1 to 17 in a masterful way. Uh, having 14 names, 14 names, and then 13 names because one name is repeated from one to the other. So it's really, it's considered three units of 14, is a mnemonic device. It was so that Jewish thinkers could memorize this because you only had a few copies. And so it was taught and it was passed down from generation to generation and people knew it verbatim um, for that purpose. And that's why it was was proven in that way. It's not a mathematical computation. This isn't numerology. It's not to be spiritualized, but just understood as, as in a clear way of three different units proving out historically that Jesus is the son 
of David. So just uh, looking this through, it's, in, it's important to understand that this is, again, spiritually um, minded Material. You should not just look at this as some sort of record. So looking at the first era where it says son of David and son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Just stop there. Abraham is the father of nations. That's what his name actually means. According to Genesis uh, 17, verse 5, he's the father of the multitude of nations. That book ends with Matthew 28, verse 19, where we're to go and make disciples. Jesus' great commission, his sort of final word before he went um, and ascended to the right hand of the Father is go to the nations with the gospel and make disciples. And so this is a, a lineage or a history that begins with the promise that, that the world through this Messiah can be saved. It's a Jewish book. It's written for Jews to believe, but it's also written in light of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. And so we're included in this, and we're even engrafted, according to Romans chapter 11, engrafted into the Jewish people, and that's how we um, have made the church. And so we're part of this, this historical account. It begins by referencing David, and then goes right down to Abraham, and then goes right back up to David And so, again, we know Isaac, we know Jacob, we know um, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and and Judah, the father, verse 3, of Perez, Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of of Amenadab, and Amenadab, father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David, the father of of Solomon. We'll stop there. This first section, it kind of ends at the beginning of verse 6. It's proving the path to David. It's proving the path to the ultimate leader. Well, the second section is verses 7 to through 11. And this um, speaks of the time of the kings. We're moving from the patriarchs to the time of the kings. And these are kings with checkered pasts and checkered histories. And it, it's a time that led Israel into its dark ages. It's a time of division and tragedy and disaster and moral decline. Kings were put into power almost under a secular motivation. The nation of Israel wanted a king. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations so the kings will protect us. And in one sense, those different kings who were not believers, you have Josiah who was a believer, David was a believer, Solomon a believer, but David and Josiah are really the only ones that are kind of known as godly kings. But you have a lot of kings that are either believers or unbelievers and compromising that put a curse on the nation of Israel And so it begs for a true king when you look at this list of kings and you see them. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, father of Jotham. Jotham, father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. There's a godly king there. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. 
and his brothers at the time of the deportation uh, to Babylon. Again, that section covered about 400 years of history. That leads us into the third period where Israel was under a curse. It's like God said, I've had enough with these kings. Jeconiah is placed under a curse and he's representative of all of the failed attempt for man to prop up men to be their king, disqualified kings by and large, that sent them into exile, exile. This is, um, you know, a 600-year period. Ultimately, you have two, you have, uh, you know, you have 200 years of, um, of dark ages where they were in exile for all of those years and then they're rebuilding, they're in a rebuilding period, finishing off um, this kind of two generations of um, recovery, rebuilding the temple and it's leading up to a 400-year section of the intertestamental period between the ending of Malachi to the dawning and the birth of Christ. It's documented here in Matthew um, verse. 16, the coming of Christ. You have God's kingdom and glory that was, was on display at the beginning through the patriarchs and it was lost due to sin and it's beginning to be dawning and restored through the coming of Christ. This is the, this third period, again, is speaking of the deportation to Babylon, which means they were sent in exile and then they came back. Uh, it says, verse 12, after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Now, his name is repeated there to make the 14-name list. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of um, Abiud, and Abiud, father of Elikim, and Elikim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. Now, you have Jacob, who's the blood father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So you have 14 generations, three times over to make this up. This is a a lineage of glory and then loss and then hope, but it's mercy not left to tragedy. We're not lost in the dark ages. There is the dawning of the coming of Christ. And this proves out when you read this passage and these verses, not just in terms of a history lesson, trying to piece together the Bible like a Bible student, but to read this by faith. Jesus knew he was the Messiah And we as Christians know he's the Messiah by faith, by resonating with the Holy Spirit with Scripture. Jesus said to Pilate on his, um, when he was being tried to go to the cross, Pilate said, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You have to listen to the voice of Christ. You have to see grace in this lineage. Now, I know of no better way than to show grace through the women who are mentioned here. Instead of going through all the men, I want to talk about the four women who are in this genealogical record. Because they are a picture of grace. In one sense, for them to be included is grace because God made men and men and women. But women in this Jewish culture were disregarded and they were sort of put to a lower level. 
because of sin and and the the you know the the way that people do that chauvinism is really sin and there was strong chauvinism against women um, in the Jewish culture and and these women in particular all carry a past and a history of sin and even scandal and immorality and um, women that were extolled or um, readily um, sort of esteemed in Jewish culture and in Old Testament culture are those like Sarah who was married to Abraham, Rebecca married to Isaac, you have Rachel, you have uh, Leah. So you have uh, women who were godly, but then you have women who were godly that had a history of illicit immorality. And those names are Tamar. You see that in verse 3, verse 5, Rahab, uh, verse 5, Ruth, and then verse 6, the wife of Uriah, who is who? Bathsheba, right? That's Bathsheba. And so all these women came out of something. Ruth, now she's not known for committing some immoral act, but she's a Moabitess, which the Moabitess people were unclean or considered that way, not part of ethnic Israel, Deuteronomy 23.3. They were not admitted to the congregation, but Ruth was redeemed by Boaz and was brought into the family of God. The Moabite people came from an illicit, immoral act of daughters to their father, a lot, and that was producing, um, you know, offspring that are enfolded into this line, which is incredible. These are improbable candidates for um, for being part of Jesus's line, but Jesus wanted them to be there, and they are pictures of grace and mercy within the line of Christ. Tamar, verse three, she disguised herself as a prostitute for an illicit union, which bore. Perez, who is right in this line leading to David, twin sons, Perez and Zerah, Genesis 38, and Perez is part of that. Perez joined Judah in the Messianic line, that's what verse 3 says. Rahab, the harlot, was a prostitute by profession. She was part of the Jericho people in the promised land where Israel was as an army taking over and they were um, threatening Jericho and they sent spies in and the spies connected with Rahab and Rahab hid the spies and lied on their behalf um, doing so but also manifesting faith even from her immorality and lying. God saved her and spared her nevertheless and and she became a key part by marrying Solomon and having a child who is Boaz. And Boaz, verse 5, is the one who redeemed Ruth and married Ruth. And, and that they became, um, as a marriage, parents of Jesse or, and Obed, the father of Jesse and Ruth, basically becoming a grandmother being a grandmother to David. It's incredible. It's incredible that all of this stuff is tied together in perfect history. So what does this matter? How does this actually mean anything? Well, I just want to say this. The gospel is about barriers dropping. 
And what you have is Jew and Gentile in this lineage, in this line where barriers have dropped and family is made into the family of God. And even today, as we look amongst each other and think about where we all come from, we all have Christ in common. And these particular women show that God works through all kinds of circumstances. Think of David with um, Bathsheba committing adultery, doing a cover-up politically in terms of his kingdom and in terms of his guilt, having uh, Uriah, her husband, killed. The son that was produced by adultery dies in infancy, and their next son is Solomon, who is the kingly line. William Barclay said if Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he could not have discovered four more incredible ancestors for Christ. There's something lovely here at the very beginning of Matthew that shows us the symbol of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus in Matthew 9.13 said, I came not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners, sinners. That leads us to a question that needs to be asked and answered. This is, how can a sinless savior and king come from a line so soiled by sins and sinners? How can pure Jesus come from this impure, checkered pedigree and history of what you would think on the surface are disqualified people to be part of the line of Christ? How does that all work together? What you need to understand is it's important for us to recognize that Jesus, though he's perfect and sinless, came from a very earthy, real life history. Jesus is real life. He knows where you come from. He knows what you've done. And he redeems things. He redeems your life by his life, his perfect life. Think again of Boaz redeeming Ruth. It's incredible. It's incredible. Understanding this is uh, this wide spectrum of humanity that would have been repulsive to an Orthodox Jew is actually beautiful for a Christian to see. This is, again, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 1, Jesus Christ. It's the only time that the phrase Jesus Christ is used in Matthew, those two words together. Everywhere else, Jesus is just his common name, but Jesus is is Messiah is a big part of Matthew's writing here. So what is the purpose of Matthew? Matthew's lineage is to prove Jesus is king and he's regally qualified, regally qualified. You say, why is that important? Well, it's actually important to understand that there are two genealogical records, one in Matthew and one in Luke, one that traces through the line of Joseph and other, the other one in Luke that traces the line through Mary, one that is a regal lineage qualifying Jesus through the line of David and Solomon and the other that is qualifying Jesus through the legitimate legal bloodline of Mary. Both are coming from David, but both lines actually are coming through two different people, one through the line um, down to Joseph and the other through a line that goes down through Mary. And then they find each other in in union and in marriage because God brings them together. And Jesus is born of a virgin with a father, Joseph, who is a stepfather to him. Before they were united, 
Jesus was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit in Mary. And so these two things have to go together perfectly to prove Jesus as the perfect Messiah. If you just had one line and not the other, the proof is not, um, is, is not made for Jesus being Messiah. You have to have both lines. And I want to show you why that's important real quickly, because I think it is so important to see this um, in our text Matthew's line is tracing through Joseph's history. Luke's line in, in Luke chapter 3 is through Mary's history. The lines go in um, reverse order, which is kind of immaterial. Luke's line starts with Jesus and goes backwards, down to Abraham, da- down to Adam. Um, Matthew's line, as we saw, is, dis- is ascending from Abraham. Matthew is, uh, comes down to Jesus um, by way of Solomon, Matthew 1.6 son of David. And Luke comes down to Jesus by way of Nathan, Luke 3.31. Nathan is not, this is not Nathan the prophet, don't be confused. But what you have here is you have David who has two different sons from two different women. uh, And one son is um, Nathan. One son's Nathan. He's the older brother of Solomon who is the other son by way of Bathsheba. These are half-brothers. They're both there in the line, David, two sons, Nathan and Solomon. And from those um, boys, they have children, and those children are like half-cousins to each other. And so you have have Mary's line, and you have have, um, Joseph's line. And these things come together. One is proving that... Jesus comes from Solomon's line and he's regal, regally qualified. He's qualified in a regal sense to be a king. And the other is proving that Jesus is legally qualified or physically qualified through a bloodline. If you only had one and not the other, it would not have worked. It wouldn't make sense. There had to be um, some things solved and resolved in this issue. One line would not suffice. You had to harmonize both lines to qualify Jesus as Messiah and as King. Well, what do I mean by that? Why does this matter? Well, look back with the Matthew chapter one, look at verse 12. It says, after the deportation to Babylon, you have Jeconiah. Verse 11, it was the last king that's mentioned in this section of the kings. Remember, there are three sections. The second section is the section of the kings. The last one was Jeconiah. And Jeconiah is placed under a curse right before Israel goes into Babylon. It's like God said, I've had it. I'm done with these kings. I'm going to put a curse on kings. And we're going to put them in Babylonian captivity. There's going to be no more kings after Jeconiah, except for one. And that's Jesus. But Jeconiah was placed under a curse, and the curse was severe. Jeremiah twenty two thirty. it says, Write this down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling after Judah. That verse means that if Joseph was Jesus' blood father, Jesus could not have been the king. He would have been disqualified. Can't happen. He's under a curse because the bloodline. But Joseph was not Jesus' blood father. Nevertheless, the fact that Jesus comes in connection from Joseph 
Joseph being his legal stepfather that actually answers something that's missing on Mary's bloodline. Because if Mary's, because on Mary's bloodline, you have Jesus who comes by way of Nathan. Remember the older brother, um, the older half-brother of Solomon? You have Nathan there. And Nathan was never a king. So if Jesus said, well, I'm the king of the Jews, people could say, well, but you didn't come from a regal bloodline. You came via Nathan. No. Well, Mary was married to Joseph. And so Joseph's bloodline actually qualifies Jesus as a regally qualified king who's not under the curse because he he didn't come by blood. Do you see all those details? I mean, Joseph is, is his stepfather. And so... So that's how this thing meshes together. It's kind of confusing, but it is interesting. Luke one twenty three gives this this same, or Luke three twenty three gives this same kind of um, idea. If you'll look over there with me, this little nuance that shows that Jesus is the perfect Messiah. It says Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age. Being the son, and then you have this phrase, as was supposed of Joseph. That means um, Joseph, and it says of Joseph, the son of Heli. That means Joseph was Jesus' stepfather, and Joseph was, um, was, a, was a son-in-law of Heli. A son of, and who is Heli? Heli is Mary's father. He's the son of Heli meaning son-in-law, connected in that way. In verse 16 of Matthew 1, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph. So was Heli Joseph's father or was Jacob Joseph's father? Well, Jacob was Joseph's blood father and Heli was his father-in-law. Does that make sense? And so you have these details and connections that are credentialing Christ perfectly. The line alone Uh, Matthew's line alone would not have credentialed Jesus um, perfectly, but it's it's actually perfect in terms of him being king. And then Jeconiah's curse is solved by the fact that he came through the bloodline of Mary's line. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he he said this, I want to quote him, says the answer here is the line that had no curse upon it produced Healy. And his daughter, which was the Virgin Mary, and her son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is therefore eligible by the line of Nathan. And that line is exhausted in that way. And then the line that had a curse on it produced Joseph. That was the line through Solomon. And that line is exhausted as well. So both lines for Jesus are exhausted perfectly to make Jesus the royal, perfect Air. You know, all of Joseph's other, Joseph and Mary, they had biological sons together. There were seven of them. You remember that? Half-brothers of Jesus. None of them would be qualified to be the Messiah. None of them could be the Messiah. None of them had, none of them would have been out from under Jeconiah's curse through the bloodline, the actual bloodline of Joseph. But because this marriage came to, to be in the way that it was, 
Jesus, as the older brother of those half-brothers, was the only one who could be king. So what does this matter? Well, you need to understand something. Jesus is associated with Matthew's line. He's associated with all of those women and all of those sins. He's associated with all of those failed kings. He's associated with all of the patriarchs. He's associated with sinners. And yet he's completely without sin. He's not touched by that. He's the rightful heir, the king that comes without a curse. Do you see that? So Jesus, in one sense, completely relates to us in our humanity, in our earthiness. He gets us. He knows from where we've come from. But he's not soiled personally by sin. He's the God of second chances, though, the God of grace. He is the redeemer. He is the one who's come to us, born of a virgin, fully human, but divine. Jesus is as earthy as any human, but as righteous as a sinless savior had to be. What does this mean? It means this, our sins may be as black as listed in chapter one of Matthew, but nothing, nothing, nothing will shut you out of heaven. Nothing will keep you from this king if you turn to him in faith.